This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Country. Today, new questions to ask your cardiac surgeon if you need a bypass. The young Australians dying suddenly from a preventable cause, usually with no one nearby. A cause of fatigue you might not have heard about before that has a new treatment. And according to two major papers published internationally last week, led by Australian researchers, injecting drug use and its harms are spreading globally, particularly to low-income countries. Yet known interventions, which are often cheap and reduce harm, have not kept up with increased usage, and some have gone backwards. This is the third such review of injecting drug use globally. The lead researcher was Professor Louisa Degenhardt, who's Deputy Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, Louisa. Thanks very much, Norman. I think the first time we had you on, we are talking about cannabis, but this is a long <laughs> way from cannabis. So let's start with the first of these papers, which is a review of the available data over the last five years, or well, 19, you know, 2017 to 2022, on injecting drug use the harms, and what you call behavioural and environmental risks. Before we go on, what, what did you mean by those? So, look, what we are really trying to do is increase the scope in the reviews that we're doing to focus not just on the individual, but to actually look at the environments and the, the risks that people are exposed to. And so in terms of environmental risk factors, what we're talking about are things like homelessness, exposure to incarceration, um, involvement in sex work, and all of those things can serve to increase exposure to risk for people who inject drugs. Which is either an effect of the drug use or it's the search for income to pay for your drug use. Yeah, and the intersectionality of exposure to vulnerable um, situations. Because as you know, many people who inject drugs have come from um, very disadvantaged backgrounds and all of these things kind of coalesce together. So let's start with the first paper, which is on the pattern of drug use. What did you find? So look, we estimate there are almost uh, 15 million people um, inject drugs, injected drugs recently um, globally. Uh, most of them are men, about one in five are women. And what we also did this time is look, take a much broader look at the health and physical and mental health um, of people who inject drugs as recorded in existing studies. So while a lot of focus has been on HIV, so around 15% of people globally who inject drugs, um, we estimate, are infected with HIV, really, really high levels of mental health problems, so maybe two in three are living with anxiety. We've got one in five who've recently overdosed. So there's a really broad spectrum of health issues that people who inject drugs are facing. And there's a fair bit to unpick there because the particularly mental health issues can either come first and the drug use second or the drug use comes first. And they, but either way, it makes it harder to deal with. That's 100% correct, yeah. Either way, it serves to complicate both the treatment of mental health and also the um, treatment of drug use if people wish to address their drug use. So that 15 million, I mean, in your paper, you talk about how it's spread to low-income countries. Just give us a sense of the spread. So we we think compared to our previous review, around 10 more countries, we've now located evidence that injecting is occurring. And that's really in sub-Saharan Africa and some Pacific islands. The issue for those countries is the capacity to respond with evidence-based interventions. Even in high-income countries, we're doing a pretty poor job. But we're now seeing spread to countries where their capacity to, to respond is incredibly limited. So let's come to that response in a second. Is it mostly opiates? Is it mostly heroin? 
when we look at studies that look at the, what's the primary drug injected, around 80% um, of people who inject drugs say that their primary drug is opioids, so things like heroin and, and other um, opiate drugs. And is ice growing? Look, it's pretty stable. Um, I mean, obviously... So I'm talking in, about injectable amphetamines rather than... Yes, yeah. yeah. So in Australia, we see around one in three um, people who inject say that that's their main drug that they're injecting. But you do see a, quite a difference in some countries it will be cocaine or other countries it will be methamphetamine, but rarely the two at the same time. So let's look at these harm reduction because the basis of control here is you reduce harm in the hope that at some point people will give up their drugs in a sense nat- naturally or through intervention. So there's opioid substitution, things like methadone. There's needle and syringe programs so that you're injecting yourself cleanly. There's naloxone, which is a blocker which can prevent overdoses. Those are the sorts of things, injecting rooms, those are the sorts of things you were looking at in terms of harm reduction interventions. Because yes. they're not all, they're, most of them are quite cheap. Most of them are quite cheap. Um, for example, methadone is an incredibly cheap medicine to deliver, but sadly we really haven't been seeing a, a, a substantial increase in either the number of countries who make it available to people who inject drugs or where it is available, how many people are actually accessing it. And that's really one of the disappointing findings of the review. So what's going on here? Head buried in the sand? People feel, countries feel they can't afford it? What's going on? Well, I guess it differs according to the context. So in some countries, they are very um, reliant on um, organisations such as the Global Fund to, to um, assist with their documenting the issues and delivering services. In high-income countries... The Global Fund for HIV, AIDS. Yes, uh, malaria and TB. And, but in high-income countries, there's really no excuse because a lot of the interventions are very cheap to deliver and it therefore becomes what is the will of government to provide interventions for this very marginalised group to reduce their harm. And do we know what the impact of those are in terms of a whole population? So if you deliver, for example, methadone and buprenorphine at high levels, like we do in... being, it's kind of, it's another drug that simulates opiates. Yes, they... they but in a safer way. In a safer way, and, and they are longer acting, so they sort of stabilise someone in terms of um, making them feel um, more stabilised for over a longer period of time. Um, and I should just say they also prevent crime. Yes. So what we know is they reduce mortality, they reduce um, incidence of infectious disease, they reduce crime, they improve the well-being, not only of people who are using drugs, but also the people around them. So there's such strong evidence for those interventions um, that it is consistently disappointing that we're not seeing greater uptake in many countries. And just going back to the rise in usage and going down to low-income countries, is this just the global criminal industry of so they're now trafficking to low-income countries, their new markets? Yeah, particularly in, in Africa, what we know is they are often um, uh, transportation routes from um, source countries through particularly, for example, to Europe. And what happens is you have spillover. So you inevitably there will be people who start using drugs who are along those transshipment routes. And are there trade-offs? I mean, one of the notorious things that happens with uh, illicit drugs is the market moves according to supply. Are we seeing those sorts of trade-offs as well in the low-income countries or you didn't get that sort of granularity? We didn't get that granularity for for this review, but what we do know is, I mean, this is a really, really risky sort of um, situation to have because we know that not just with the health response but also the the law enforcement response, both of those are very limited in a lot of these countries. I don't think you mentioned decriminalisation in your papers. Has that got a role in control? 
Look, I think uh, decriminalisation is definitely something that is very top of mind for many of us. Um, particularly when you've got people in law enforcement who have um, an element of judgment about whether or not they choose to charge someone or not, that can often really disproportionately affect people who use drugs and people who inject drugs. Uh, so to the extent that you can av avoid someone getting a criminal um, record and going into prison, which is also a very risky, risky environment, um, that's something definitely to consider. Yeah, including the hepatitis, which we didn't cover, but you also document in your paper. Louisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Professor Louisa Degenhart is Deputy Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. The general public will hear schizophrenia and think, ah, that's something that happens to those people over there. It's really important for people to understand their dads, their soccer players, their violinists, their mums, their daughters, their boyfriends. I would just ask your listeners to, as they're hearing us talk about people with schizophrenia in the interview, imagine someone you love and then have a think about it because that's often the gap for people. People with severe mental health issues such as schizophrenia, the people Rachel Green from SANE Australia was talking about there, have a life expectancy as much as 25 years lower than the rest of the Australian community and that's not fully explained by self-harm. It's because people with schizophrenia in particular are dying at young ages of preventable causes heart disease, cancer, and the complications of diabetes. In other words, physical illnesses. And now a study of people who've died suddenly of a cardiac cause has found that young people with schizophrenia are overrepresented by a factor of 11. 11 times more common compared to the rest of the community. It's an astounding statistic. The lead author on the paper was cardiologist Dr Elizabeth Peratz, who's based at the Baker Institute in Melbourne. Welcome to The Health Report, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Now, Elizabeth, this was part of a project in Victoria aimed at ending unexplained cardiac deaths. Correct. So we have a registry that's statewide and we collect the information of people aged 1 to 50 years old who have died suddenly. Um, and we match together the ambulance information, the hospital and the forensic information to try and provide an overview of all the sudden cardiac arrests, so events where the heart is stopping and young people are needing resuscitation to pick up important patterns that we wouldn't pick up analysing on a case-by-case -case basis. And one pattern that really stood out to us in putting this data together was that so many people whose hearts were stopping suddenly, young people, had schizophrenia. And as you've already alluded to, schizophrenia affects around 1% of the population. So it's not uncommon but in our registry, it's very common. And 11% of the people with young sudden death had schizophrenia. What was going on? Well, describe the circumstances because, in fact, many of them were alone. So mm. what's common when somebody has a cardiac arrest, well, relatively common, it might be in the street or in the office, or somewhere with somebody around and somebody can jump on your chest and resuscitate mm. you. But the shocking statistic I noticed in your report, in your paper, was... They often die alone and are found several hours later. Yeah, that was really quite a heartbreaking and consistent theme that we saw in our data. The average, as in the median value, was that people were often alone from about two, almost two days from when they were last seen alive. So, of course, in that window, we're losing the opportunity to do CPR and um, have a potential of saving their lives. And only one in 65 of the patients who had schizophrenia were receiving CPR, which I think is a devastating statistic. Compared to what would be the average? It would be much more like 40%, 50% in the general community. 
So what are the characteristics here and what that come to cause? So it was really a bit of a perfect storm is what we've brought out in our paper. And I think that there are a lot of factors for us to be targeting and trying to improve. The first thing was the health of these patients. We know that people with schizophrenia unfortunately have worse physical health. You've already mentioned some of the things like diabetes, but uh, we also found that people with schizophrenia who were young were more likely to be smoking and drinking heavily um, than people who did not have schizophrenia. But the next thing was that they were more likely to be using uh, illicit drugs, but also uh, prescribed drugs that were at risk of causing arrhythmias. And these were often psychiatric drugs that we commonly prescribe for schizophrenia. I mean, the, and then the final. Oh, sorry. So we've got the final one. I was going to say the final element was we've sort of covered already, but was just the fact that when the arrest did happen, the fact they were more likely to have an arrest, and when it did happen, they were then alone when it happened. Now, people with schizophrenia don't like their drugs. They put on weight, they're more likely to get diabetes. Mm. And as you alluded to, there's this phenomenon called long QT. It's complicated, but essentially, when you look at the electrocardiogram trace, which people know about, one part is elongated and makes you more likely to have fatal arrhythmias, but you didn't find arrhythmias necessarily to be the cause. We didn't know. Um, so as you've mentioned, the ECG, the electrocardiogram, there's this particular interval called the QT interval and psychiatric drugs are particularly prone to making it longer and therefore a bit riskier. But other drugs like antibiotics can prolong it as well. So it's not just psychiatric drugs. The issue is that when we're looking at people after they've died, we can't always say that they've for sure died of an arrhythmia because that won't be obvious on the post-mortem examination. So we couldn't definitively say that there were more people with arrhythmia, um, but we could definitively say there were certainly many, many more people on these QT prolonging medications in the schizophrenia group. So what to do about how to prevent this from happening? Well, I guess the good thing about it being a perfect storm is I think there's a lot of elements to attack. I think the first thing is sort of good preventative care, making sure we try to reduce our patients with schizophrenia's cardiac risk factors like smoking and drinking. I think the incredible overrepresentation means that if I see a patient with schizophrenia, I'm going to be very aware of their elevated cardiac risk and take any symptoms that they're reporting very seriously. I guess the final thing I would say is that all these interventions in society that are to improve the quality of life and social supports for people with mental health problems, I think our study suggests that they probably don't just improve quality of life, they may be helping to improve quantity of life every time we provide someone with extra support and extra people around them. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr Elizabeth Peratz is a cardiologist based at the Baker Institute in Melbourne. Now, concerns about premature deaths among people living with schizophrenia aren't new. Health Report producer Shelby Trainer spoke to Rachel Green, who's CEO of advocacy organisation SANE Australia, about ways of tackling this. Back in 2010, SANE produced a report and it found that maybe only one in 10 had any kind of relationship around them that people had real difficulty accessing care. And here we are in 2023, and not only do we know that the situation is still the same, in fact, it's gotten a bit worse. There's excessive wait times, which means that if this is just starting to emerge for someone, getting access to care is really, really difficult. And so what is SANE doing to improve the situation? So we're offering a guided support program. It's funded under a pilot that goes until June this year. We help people to build a support plan, identify what their needs and goals might be. And so, for example, that might relate to something like physical health. Where's the gap here? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing? 
we would think that addressing stigma and discrimination within healthcare settings and within the workplace would have to be two really key challenges because if you've got someone with a psychotic illness, they might be struggling with things like self-care. So they might appear in a hospital with physical health symptoms but only be seen for their mental illness and often turned away for that reason, particularly if they're known to health services. It's what's called the overshadowing effect where they go to see a doctor, talk about pain they're having, talk about physical health issues and professionals who might be more influenced by seeing the mental illness might not give treatment to the physical illness. Is this about just greater awareness among practitioners or is there something else going on? You know, the solution to every problem in healthcare is often educate the health practitioners. They also need to have a system that allows them to do something with that education. People with more complex illnesses need more time and the practitioners therefore need to be able to have more time to spend with them. Rachel Green of Sane Australia was talking to Shelby Trainer. Sudden cardiac death is the most dramatic and tragic manifestation of a blocked coronary artery. The first sign of a problem can also be a heart attack or angina, chest pain when you exert yourself. If it's deemed necessary to reopen blocked arteries, surgery is often recommended when high risk and multiple arteries are involved. It's called coronary artery bypass grafting, where the blockage is bypassed using a grafted artery or vein. A leading cardiac surgeon, however, is calling for significant changes to the way bypass surgery is done arguing that only arteries should be used to graft onto the blocked vessel. Alistair Royce is Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne. Norman, thanks so much. Can you just summarise what the controversy is? Internationally, coronary artery bypass surgery is done with a single arterial graft from the chest wall, the internal mammary artery, and then is supplemented by any number of vein grafts. And about 3.2 grafts per patient average then the majority of grafts from coronary artery bypass surgery being performed even today are from veins. So this, this was a surprise when you told me that originally when, before we got you on. Because yeah. I assumed that when you had coronary artery bypass surgery these days, and let's say you had three or four blocked arteries, that the blocked arteries got around, in other words, grafted. It was all arterial grafts. So what you're saying is... The surgeon chooses the riskiest artery, makes that an arterial graft, and then everything else uses a vein. Pretty much. And traditionally, you just take veins from the leg, which is the saphenous vein. Now, what we know from veins is that they are subject to an accelerated rate of atherosclerosis to such an extent that by 10 years, approximately 50% of the veins are now blocked. Compared to the arteries? Well, just from our own recent research, what we've been finding is there's a small percentage of arteries that block off early, and that's usually in the order of about 5 to 10%. So if you get beyond the first year, you're in pretty good shape? Well, it's probably within even the first few weeks to months. So if an arterial graft is found to be open, it's ubiquitously normal, whereas if a vein graft is found to be conducting blood, most of those are not normal. They are diseased. And the implication of that is that over time, they may then progressively fail further. And that means angina, chest pain on exertion, or a heart attack with all the risks of a heart attack. Indeed. So if you look at the economic impost of failed grafts, uh, death is certainly one. But there's a lot of other costs, readmission to hospital, reinterventions, there's recurrent heart failure and it's various medications. 
So before we go any further about the evidence here and, and actually changing practice more widely, particularly in Australia, what is it versus stents? Because there are cardiologists putting in two, three, four stents into blocked arteries and they would maintain, well, they get pretty good results, do they? There's a, quite a number of randomised studies between coronary artery bypass surgery and stenting. And so, sorry, and for people who don't know what we're talking about here, this yes. is where you do an x-ray of the, the arteries of the heart, you find blockages and you've got a catheter in any way and you put in a little sleeve that holds the artery open to get you beyond the blockage. So what are the data when you compare stenting, which is just a puncture in your arm or in your thigh, versus coronary artery bypass surgery, which involves a cracked chest? So the summary of the literature is that coronary bypass surgery has reduced long-term death rates and reduced reintervention rates compared to stents. It's also, of course, a bigger operation and there is a higher immediate complication rate because it's a bigger procedure. But over time, the surgery has a benefit over the PCI. So are you sure enough of these data that cardiac surgeons should be changing their practice? What we've done with this paper in the Journal of American College of Cardiology is a huge meta-analysis of non-randomized studies. And given that there is no high-quality, large-scale randomized study available, this is the best available to date. Now, Which shows argued, a clear benefit, which is what you were referring which to. Which shows earlier. a clear benefit. So if somebody's listening to us and they've got multiple vessel disease and the consensus is they should have coronary artery bypass surgery... The question to ask the cardiac surgeon is, are you going to do it all with arteries? Look, I think it's a reasonable question to be asking them. The pattern of practice, though, is generally you, as in you, the patient, get the surgery as I, the surgeon, normally do it, as it were. And so, therefore, there is a range of activity within Australia, although Australia, by international standards, uses far more arteries than, say, the US or the Europeans. But it's not as if uh, you're asking the surgeon to do anything she doesn't know how to do because she's already doing an artery graft. It just means that she might have to do two or three more. Correct. Now, we as academic surgeons are trying to persuade colleagues of ours to change their practice over time towards the exclusive use of arteries and elimination of veins. But, of course, that's not an overnight change. I mean, there are a number of barriers, not the least of which is you're comfortable doing what you do, so you feel uncomfortable if somebody says, well, why don't you change your practice? So there's this sort of pull towards status quo. But on the other hand, if there is an imperative such as a survival advantage and so forth, then you'll be tempted over time to do more and more of that. And you're actually conducting a randomised trial on this? We were very lucky. We were successful in a Medical Research Future Fund, MRFF, grant application late last year. And that will be the first major trial of this anywhere in the world. Okay, we'll come back to you when you've got the answers to that. But already there's circumstantial evidence that it's a good thing to do. Alistair, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Alistair Royce is a cardiothoracic surgeon at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Polycythemia vera is a rare disorder where the bone marrow produces too many red blood cells. These excess cells can be deadly, thickening the blood and causing organ damage and strokes. Current treatments are time-consuming and costly, but Australian researchers might have found a new way to recalibrate the blood. Health Report producer Shelby Trainer has the story. I just felt I wasn't myself. I just knew that, but I'm always tip-top, so I couldn't miss it. This is Anna. About 14 years ago, she started experiencing symptoms that didn't add up. Chronic fatigue, but this is 
crawling on all fours kind of tiredness and pruritus, which is a particular kind of very distressing itching to the point you can be crying. When these symptoms became impossible to ignore, she took herself in for a blood test. And it came back with a dangerously high red blood cell count. Anna's bone marrow was in overdrive, creating way too many red blood cells. It's a condition known as polycythemia vera, or PV. Polycythemia vera could be considered as a long-term blood disease. Formally, it is considered a blood cancer. Professor Santrain Pasricha is a haematologist who also runs a lab at the Walter and Eliza Hall Research Institute. What it really means is that patients have a change in the DNA in their blood production system that causes them to make red blood cells all by themselves without regulation by the rest of the body. Patients with polycythemia vera tend to develop very high haemoglobin concentrations or hematocrits. This means their blood becomes sludgy or sticky as it flows through their blood vessels. The mainstay for treatment for polycythemia vera is actually bloodletting. That's right, bloodletting, a practice dating back at least 3,000 years. Now it's more commonly known as venesection. Somebody explained to me if you can't turn a tap off and it's filling a bucket, you need to empty out the bucket before it overflows. Yeah, I have maybe half a litre of blood removed each time, a lot of fluids in, and overall my blood viscosity or thickness is recalibrated and off I skip. And I would say the regular rotation now is about every three to four months. While Anna has tolerated these treatments well and hasn't needed to go on other medications, that's not the case for everyone. And in some patients who are quite elderly, the fluid shifts associated with the venous section make them quite difficult to offer. Other treatments include medicines such as hydroxyurea, aspirin, and interferon, all of which can have side effects. For example, interferon can make patients feel quite fatigued and lethargic. Professor Pasricha again. One of the researchers in his lab is Dr. Kevin Bennett. He's part of a team that found a new way to potentially treat PV. The master regulator of iron throughout the body is a protein called hepcidin that's produced in the liver. And we have found the symptoms of polycythemia vera are directly regulated to the amount of hepcidin being produced. By increasing the amount of this protein, hepcidin, in people with PV, their symptoms improve. And this is because it locks iron into the peripheral organs and away from the blood. And iron is critical for the production of red blood cells. So if there's more iron locked away, there'll be fewer red blood cells. Very bad for the average person, but great news for people with PV. All it takes is an injection of a gene silencing drug that targets hepcidin production. Hepcidin has an internal break, meaning that it's not being produced at full throttle. And this break is a gene called Tempra-6. So this medicine works by silencing Tempra-6, removing this break and allow hepcidin expression to be at full throttle. It's hoped this new treatment could be self-administered. This therapy would look akin to an insulin injection that diabetic patients use all the time at home. And this would be once every few weeks, maybe every six weeks, all the way up to maybe a few times a year. 
So much less often maybe than venous section is currently and much less burdensome to the patient. Anna says she'd happily take part in the phase one and two clinical trials that are getting underway. My feeling is with such a rare cancer, the research in itself is even more rare than PV itself. Anyone anywhere doing anything is incredibly interesting and worthwhile. We want to help the health of everybody. So from the patient's perspective, even if the disease is uncommon, it doesn't mean that their syndrome is not deserving of research. This breakthrough is absolutely huge news. And not just if you're in a lab looking down a microscope, it means people's lives will be changed positively. And I was talking there to the Health Reports producer, Shelby Trainer. I'm Norman Swan, and Tegan will be back next week for an Easter Monday special. Bye till then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.